The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Everyone, welcome to Scorebox. These are your headlines. The Ukrainian president says talks with Russia are taking a more realistic route as Vladimir Zelensky hosts European leaders in Kiev and concedes the country is unlikely to join NATO. For years we've heard about open doors, but now we've already heard that we won't be able to join. It's the truth and it's necessary to admit it. The White House meanwhile confirming that US President Joe Biden will travel to Europe next week to attend an extraordinary summit of NATO leaders in Brussels in a show of solidarity with the bloc. The Hang Seng surges as tech stocks stage a massive rebound after two days of heavy declines. While US markets bounce back with the S&P 500 posting its first gain in four days. Russia stands on the brink of default as Moscow faces a key repayment deadline without access to the dollar, potentially triggering its first sovereign default on foreign currency debt since 1918. And the London Metals Exchange is set to resume nickel trading later this morning with a 5% limit on price moves as a fixed range. We will speak with the LME CEO Matthew Chamberlain at 8.15 Central European time. So, ceasefire talks between Russia and Ukraine are set to resume yet again today, with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky saying expectations are starting to sound more realistic. The talks come as the invasion enters its 21st day amid more heavy shelling from the Russians on the Ukrainian capital. Authorities said five people were killed in airstrikes in Kiev, whilst the city's mayor, Mr. Klitschko, imposed a 35-hour curfew. Now, in a video addressed, Zelensky, meanwhile, conceded a peace agreement with Russia could likely mean closing door on future NATO membership. It's clear that Ukraine is not a member of NATO. We understand it. We're reasonable people. For years we've heard about open doors, but now we've already heard that we won't be able to join. It's the truth and it's necessary to admit it. I'm glad that our people are starting to understand it and counting on themselves and our partners who help us. Zelensky also held in-person talks with the leaders of Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovenia in Kiev, where they outlined peacemaking measures for the country. Zelensky described the meeting as a, quote, powerful show of support from Ukraine's EU and NATO allies. Well, the Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki said the West would always stand with Ukraine and the victims of the Russian invasion. This invasion has to stop. The blood on the street, your mothers, your children, your wives, are safe, but those who are killed by Putin, they can never be forgotten, and they are not forgotten. We will never leave you alone. We will be with you, because we know that you are fighting not only for your homes, for your freedom, for your security, but also for ours. U.S. President Joe Biden will travel to Brussels next week for talks with fellow NATO leaders about the conflict in Ukraine. Biden is also scheduled to attend a European Union summit to discuss further sanctions on Russia. Meanwhile, NATO defence ministers begin two days of talks in Brussels today 
where Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin are scheduled to hold a press conference later this morning. So just briefly from me, uh, just a couple of things to, to put on the table here. I mean, obviously, I think the key focus um, to all of this sort of shuttle diplomacy and NATO meetings is how quickly we can get a secession of the violence. And it, 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 it still troubles me that I think we, we've got to a point where it is very difficult uh, to see how President Putin can achieve his ambitions and we get a resolution that is acceptable to everybody, uh, given that we seem to have crossed so many lines at this point. So um, will there be a, a, a commitment from uh, Ukraine not to join NATO? We don't know, but possibly. Is Ukraine prepared to see permanent independence for Donetsk and Luhansk? Uh, we don't know, but possibly. Um, are they prepared to see permanent secession of Crimea to Russia? Uh, again, these were all demands that uh, President Putin had before the violence started. And at this stage, given the brave fight that we've seen from the Ukrainians and the international outrage um, that has been um, in place since 2014, effectively the seizure of Crimea, it seems difficult to believe that everybody could find those uh, agreements acceptable at this stage. And now you need to add on top of that, it seems to me, what about reparations for the physical damage done for, to the infrastructure of Ukraine? What about reparations and support for the families of, uh, of those who have uh, lost loved ones at this stage? So many more questions now that need to be answered, I think, before we get to that point of agreement where we can have a permanent peace settlement. And just a couple of points uh, about the progress. It doesn't feel as though we're making a lot. I mean, the market keeps on trading on hopes that uh, ceasefire conversation could be taking place and that there'd be some improvement in the narrative to date. But we're just not there yet, are we? And I think uh, what we had to show is support from a couple of European nations. Quite key, if you think of implications security-wise, of having leaders on the ground in a war-torn part of the world now. A very dangerous scenario and the risk to those leaders from those three neighbouring European countries if they happen to uh, be accidentally hit, for instance. So I think uh, that show support fairly strong here, but also the ramifications that it has for where Europe goes next in terms of further stepped-up dialogue, further intervention here. And the other point is around the US, and clearly polling has been taking place, and there seems to be a view stateside that a lot of Americans do want a very strong approach from the Biden administration, which is quite pivotal, if you think, in recent years, about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the, the reluctance for boots on the grounds in, in, in a foreign conflict, that a lot of Americans now want a, a fairly strong response in this particular crisis. Yeah, you make a very good... Good morning to you, by the way. Very nice to see you. Um, you too. Yeah, look, um, I think one thing's very interesting. The, the American politics is as polarised as I've ever seen it on so many issues. But actually, on support for Ukraine, it does seem to see some meeting of minds on both the Republican and Democrat benches. I wasn't even going to mention that, actually, but I think you've raised a very good point there. So I think that's interesting. And it isn't necessarily going to be a political issue in the upcoming midterms for whether you support or not Ukraine, which... Uh, is extraordinary because every other issue seems divisive in America at the moment. But going back to NATO as well, from, from my travels and from what I've learned and speaking to these people, uh, I've learned a couple of things. One, um, there is a limit, of course, to the support that NATO feels it can give to Ukraine and at the same time avoid a third world war. That 
That is pretty much it as well. They, they, many of the members wanted to give them the MiG-29s. Many of them wanted to give them other equipment potentially. Uh, but it just does not seem feasible, both from a technical point of view and indeed from a ratcheting up the pressure point of view. Second point is, of course, about NATO itself as well. And clearly, a lot of NATO members who have been very concerned about Russia for a very long time, but have actually worried about the US commitment, have worried about the focus of NATO. And I'm not just talking about the Baltics, for instance. I'm talking about the French, for instance, who have quite rightly asked some questions questions about NATO, about the US, which is quite rightly in previous administrations asked some very big questions about NATO. Uh, so I think what has happened here, uh, and this goes on to my last point really, is that NATO, um, whether Putin meant to or not, now has a purpose again. NATO is invigorated. NATO has uh, a very clear focus on what it wants. NATO is spending a vast amount more money. For instance, the Baltics were spending 2%. They're now going to spend 2.5%. The Germans were spending 1.4% of GDP. They're now going to spend, what is it, 100 billion euros and go to 2% uh, and replace what has been quite a dilapidated um, army. The French were already decent spenders on the, on the European continent in terms of uh, uh, NATO spending on anyway, uh, now feel that their aims, and this was predating this crisis massively, now feel that their aims for a reinvigorated European Union defence policy is happening, whether it's happening via a EU army or happening via NATO, it is happening as well. So I think a lot of things have happened to reinvigorate the Western defence policy as a result of Mr Putin's actions. And Jeff, I'll give you the final word. I'm not entirely sure that is what Mr Putin wanted. No, no, absolutely. Uh, and let me just take this one step forward, because there are those um, spoken unspokens at this stage, aren't there? Given the degree of response that we've seen from Western countries at this stage, uh, will some of those capitals be content to see a cessation, a frozen conflict and a pulling back to uh, original lines? Or is this ultimately, um, and I almost feel I shouldn't say this, but I'm sure it's being thought about, is this an opportunity to permanently rid the West of what they've seen as a permanent thorn on the side on the eastern flank, i.e. some form of reg regime change in Russia, perhaps that leads to a, a trickle-down shift in the um, uh, the countries of, of Belarus and Kazakhstan and so on and so forth, where we have these uh, strong men who do not believe in democracy, terrorize their populations and ultimately continue to be a threat uh, to um, peace, stability and the democratic way of life and liberal values in the West. So very interesting as we watch these scenarios develop here, Zelensky clearly wants um, an end to the conflict on his own territory. But are there, are there uh, Western capitals who are looking at this now and thinking, well, this is an opportunity to ultimately rid us of someone who has continued to terrorise uh, Eastern Europe uh, for decades and ultimately, everybody would feel happier and safer, and NATO wouldn't need to be as strong as you're describing, Steve, if there wasn't that permanent threat to the east. But um, I'm sure it's being modelled, I'm sure it's being planned, but nobody wants to come out too much and talk about it publicly in official circles. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, the US has imposed sanctions on 11 Russian military leaders alongside a number of other individuals who are accused of human rights abuses. The White House 
also applied new measures to the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, for his role in supporting and aiding Russia's attack. In return, Russia has banned U.S. President Joe Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and other top U.S. officials from entering the country. Russia's stop list also includes Hillary Clinton and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, among others. Russia is trying to maintain military manpower in Ukraine by transferring troops as far away as uh, its Pacific fleet. According to an assessment by the UK Defence Ministry, Moscow is also recruiting more mercenaries to replace lost personnel. Russia has fired around 1,000 missiles in Ukraine since the invasion began, but has apparently made little progress in taking Kiev. A senior U.S. defense official told reporters, despite the losses, both the Ukrainians and Russians still have 90% of their combat power available, according to that same official, Steve. Right, let us uh, move on. Over 3 million refugees have now fled Ukraine, and that's not including the displaced people within the country, a country of, what is it, 42 million people. 3 million have now fled Ukraine. That number could eventually rise to 5 million people, according to the UN and International Organization for Migration. The agencies are describing it as the, quote, fastest-growing refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. Coming up on the show, it's all systems go as the Fed readies for its first rate hike since the pandemic and closes the door on its ultra easy monetary policy. Is a 50 basis point move on the cards? Maybe, maybe not this time, but we'll discuss coming up next. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. A lot of big headlines for the markets this week from Ukraine to what we've got playing out in China with the COVID situation. And of course, today is Fed Day as the market's expecting that first rate hike from the U.S. Federal Reserve. Uh, What we had on markets yesterday, a bounce. Again, these markets are very much leading into any messages that they can glee from Russia, Ukraine, hopes of a ceasefire, hopes for some progress. And it was a day where we saw some of the gains unlocked, 2.9% pop on the Nasdaq. It was uh, very much outpacing other areas of the market, the Dow up 1.8%. look at some of the big leaders, you can see why Microsoft, for instance, are one of the big tech names. And that was a, a big boost for the major markets. In contrast to some of the weakness you saw creeping into the energy stocks, and that was a laggard in session. So the Dow held back a little bit by that undercurrent of the weakness in the energy basket to the tune of 3.7% versus tech yesterday that bounced 3.4%. You can see for the seven days on the NASDAQ, a bounce of 1.2%. So we have got a somewhat of a recovery trade taking place in that area of the market. And let's move on to what we've got out of the commodities space because oil is on the move in the past hour or so. 
we had had some early weakness, but that has now translated to gains. Very volatile again as the market is positioning around the geopolitics. We were below 100, for instance, on prices. You can see 102.50 odd on Brent this morning, 2.6% pop, WTI level 98.50. So still a lot of predictions about more pain at the pump at this point. And uh, I think a lot of traders still trying to work out where the positioning is around this as we pulled off the 130 plus handle in recent weeks. It's been a fairly significant decline, but morning session, we're going back up again. I want to take you to Treasuries. I mentioned uh, the key elements here around Fed Day, the fact that the market had been uh, very hawkish before the Russia invasion of Ukraine, but after the significant developments and the concerns now for growth, you'd seen a peel back from some of this uh, bond market positioning. But uh, morning session, we're 1.84 on the two-year, 2.16 on the 10-year. So the market just trying to and get a sense of what to do here. Don't forget the dot plot is going to be closely watched today and what those Fed members seeing down the track and whether still some of the concerns around inflation given the high headline level on CPI is uh, very much going to be dominant for the Fed at this point as it tries to get uh, ahead of the narrative and just anchor expectations around inflation. That's quite key. So watching this market very closely today. Let me take you to Hong Kong. We're on the move around Hong Kong stocks in particular around the big tech names. A lot of concerns in the market uh, in recent trades around the zero COVID approach on the mainland market and what that ramification is for a lot of the supply chain and the demand system. So we are now bouncing on Hong Kong. Look at that uh, high single digit bounce intraday, 7.9% on the market. So very strong recovery taking place in Hong Kong. And you can see it expressed through those big tech stocks, uh, double digit bounce for some of the big names we've seen intraday. And it's just a monster session for some of them. May Twin, for instance, 27% high, 10 cent, 21% high in the trade today. 30% on JD and Alibaba soaring 19.6%. It's a stunning trade, isn't it? As you take a look at uh, how you could have uh, been positioned just around a daily trade. We're not even talking quarterly here. We are talking one day of trade. And to the Asian markets more broadly, uh, this is how they're responding to that volatility in Hong Kong. You can see uh, Chinese stocks also jumping up 3.1%, but nothing really much uh, in uh, the other markets compared to the China and Hong Kong trade. We've got 1.1% on the Australian market, 1.6% up on Japanese stocks, more of a normal upbeat session playing out there in contrast to that volatility around Hong Kong. To the US futures, uh, this is how we're setting up for the trade later on. But again, it's early on in the session. We do have such a big risk event today around uh, expectations for inflation, growth and unemployment and uh, what the path for rates, let alone the balance sheet for the Fed will yeah, look like. Extraordinary, those Hong Kong moves. I mean, there's a real liquidity problem. That, that's it. We're on the upside and the downside, mm. Not for me to judge where they should be going, but the fact is there is clearly a liquidity problem with a lack of depth in the market at the moment. That is why we're seeing crazy, crazy moves, uh, as you uh, pointed out. Thanks, Karen. Uh, the Federal Reserve's two-day meeting is expected to conclude today with a rate hike. Its first step in reversing the extraordinary easing it put in place two years ago to help the economy through the pandemic. Fed watchers expect the central bank will also provide a new quarterly forecast uh, that could show as many as five to seven more quarter point hikes this year, with the majority of large financial institutions expecting to see between 150 and 175 basis points in total rate hikes over the next 10 months. Eric Lonergan, macro fund manager, M&G Investments, joins us now. Eric, really nice to see you. Um, I'm not going to talk about your book, which just arrived this morning, if you don't mind. Uh, thank you for that, by the way. I will My definitely pleasure. read that one, I promise you. But let's talk about the Fed. Um, yeah. 
A lot of very, very smart people who probably work for M&G as well, uh, they call themselves economists, have completely and utterly made a howler on inflation, even way before the current Ukraine crisis. Now those same people are telling me, oh, that PPI has peaked at 10%. But they don't look at that. They look at the lower uh, core figure of just over 8%. They say that uh, CPI has peaked uh, at 40-year highs. But, Eric, uh, are they wrong? And what should the Fed do? Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Pleasure to be with you. You're absolutely, I think you've hit the nail on the head, right? The emperor has no clothes. Um, it, it's actually obvious. Um, if this isn't an inflation problem, I genuinely don't know what an inflation problem looks like. Uh, the Fed isn't just behind the curve, it's not even on the curve. Uh, it's, it's semantics that we're debating 25 or 50 basis points. The last time the labor market, whatever about headline inflation rates, the labor market, the last time it was this, this tight in the United States on the employment cost index, the Fed funds rate was 6%, which I remember in the late 1990s. Um, the Fed funds rate should be somewhere like 3% currently. I don't think I've ever seen a central bank this far behind the curve um, in the developed world. So we've got a major problem. We've got extremely bad news to come on the interest rate front. And to be honest, they should just step up and deliver the bad news now because bad news is coming. And we are in all likelihood going to get a major repricing of bond and equity markets, which is inevitable as we get an interest rate shock. But I think you are 100% correct. It is one of those situations, one of the few situations I think I've seen in my career where it's actually blindingly obvious. Eric, can I ask you about the growth risk, though, as we weigh up the Russia-Ukraine situation, also mainland market in China and the COVID situation? Uh, some are looking at the, the growth numbers. Uh, the median estimate could be 3.3% down from the 4% projection. How do you weigh up the threat, though, to, to the growth story from here? I mean, the, the economic facts of what's been happening with respect to the Ukraine in terms of the global economy is what is significant is the increase in energy prices, the increase in wheat prices. Um, but they are by no means um, going to derail the global economy. Uh, if anything, the, the most logical impact is that it's a further inflationary shock. Um, so... There's a big caveat, the, the, the greater the proximity. Obviously, in, in Europe, there is greater uncertainty about what happens to economic growth. But I don't really subscribe to these kind of single variable economic models that just say, you know, the real oil price has gone up, there's going to be a recession. If you look at those models in the past where they've had predictive power, you've had tight monetary policy. It's completely different when you give a an oil price shock, but relatively modest in the context of history. If we look at the really big oil price shocks, this is relatively modest. Um, in terms of the U.S. economy, it has a diverse impact. There are, of course, states that benefit, so there's an element of redistribution. Uh, it's just a super, super hot U.S. economy. The labor market is booming. Um, you know, and, and the other point I should stress here is this is no fault of policymakers to an extent. I mean, we've never had a pandemic before. These are very unusual sets of circumstances. But what I think is very clear is that monetary policy is completely inappropriate relative to the economy. Eric, which is ironic then, as you talk about the strength of the U.S. economy, that your last line on your notes this morning says capital preservation is key. Uh, be short most major asset classes. Could I just get you to unpack that? Because that's about the most bearish comment I've heard 
for a very long time. You don't like anything. That's pretty much that's pretty much right, Jeff. Um, and you know, uh, you know, you've had me on this show many times uh, over the last decade or so. And on many occasions, I've most most of that time, in fact, I've wanted to own risk. Um, I've actually advocated that central banks print money and, and drop, you know, do helicopter drops because we've been in a deflationary environment for the last decade. You know, markets. So the, the bond market is pretty straightforward. It's interest rate expectations, and there is this bizarre anchoring around two percent. People seem to think two percent is a magic number. Two percent isn't a magic number. There's absolutely no reason why interest rates can't go well well above two percent. You know, and I'm sitting, you look at 30 year treasuries on a two and a half percent yield with an economy this strong, it's madness. So uh, it is highly likely that, that there's a major adjustment to interest rate expectations, and the whole of the bond market, I'm afraid, is in trouble. Th- that kind of interest rate shock is not going to be good for credit. Now, you look at the equity market, you know, equities always confound people in the real economy because, we, you know, if you're, you're operating in the real economy, often you're in a recession, you wonder why the equity market is going up. That's how equity markets behave. A booming economy, which is going to face a real interest rate shock, the equity market is hit by the discount rate. So we've got to, you know, if, if equities did incredibly well, in a sense, during uh, the pandemic, I'm, I'm afraid this kind of boom is really going to be a problem. Now, there is a caveat, which is there is it is reasonable to expect significant rotation within the equity market like we have seen. So, for example, the banking sector is going to make an awful lot of money as interest rates rise. Because of QE, and this is an underappreciated fact, but QE has changed the asset mix of the banking sector. So the largest share of the banking sector's assets are on deposit with the Fed earning the Fed funds rate. So as the Fed funds rate goes up, they will make more money. So there will be profit beneficiaries but the aggregate equity market, you know, the S&P 500 is trading on the highest P multiple it's traded since the TMT bubble in the late 1990s. This is on a very elevated level of earnings. Um, I find it very difficult to see how if, if, if most of the major asset classes benefit from a declining interest rate, how a major interest rate shock isn't going to cause a problem for the major asset classes. So, so, so Eric, I mean, you're... you're clients don't come to you and say, Eric, look after my cash for me like a bank. They come to you because you're a fund manager and they think M&G is going to make them money uh, by operating in in the financial markets. So so what are you actually doing at the moment, given the advice you've just given? So, I mean, in the hedge fund, this isn't going to surprise you. I mean, I've got the largest bond short I think we've had, which is close to 200% of NAV short fives. So I've just got a very, very big short interest rate position. Uh, We've been making money in a falling market environment by virtue of that position. Um, You know, I would defend it. I defend it to my clients from exactly the the, the, the scenario that I've described to you. Um, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be bearish, but it's my job to, to, to preserve capital and generate a positive return. Um, and I think your, your best odds of generating positive returns at the moment is to be short bonds. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.